Before we jump into today's podcast, which is going to be fabulous with Chris Kresser, I have a big announcement for our 400th episode. We will be doing voice recorded questions pending we get any. (laughs) So what you can do is call our Well-Fed Women question hotline, record your question, and then we will include it on the show. So the telephone number that you will call, it will go directly to a voice message, which I will explain to you how you'll leave the message. So don't worry if you're a little confused, but just call 703-828-7118. Again, that's 703-828-7118. Leave your question there, and then we'll include it on the 400th episode. Now, we really need this to be done in the next week or two, probably more like the next week. So, But if you are listening to this and the 400th episode has already aired, no problem. Keep recording your questions. Feel free to call in because I have a feeling we're probably doing this a little bit more. So can't wait to hear from you. Thank you guys to all of you for being here for 400 episodes. We love you. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 395. I am your host, Noelle Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a certified personal trainer. You can head over to my website, coconutsandkettlebells.com, and click podcast at the top to search all the previous episodes by topic because we have a lot of them. Today's episode in particular is one I've been excited about for quite some time. I have uh, really looked up to our guest today, and honestly, when I was getting started about 10 years ago, he was the leading voice when it came to nutrient density and things like the gut microbiome and intestinal permeability. Like, Not a lot of people were talking about these things, but Chris was, and he's somebody that even to this day, I still use his resources and articles and his take on the literature to try to assess, you know, what's going on and what the science says. So I am so excited to have Chris on today. We are going to dive into all of your questions. A lot of you sent in some questions, more complex questions about gut health and parasites, but we're also going to be talking specifically about getting to the root cause of issues and why sometimes that isn't necessary. Hmm. And we're also going to be answering a lot of questions about nutrients, nutrient density, some more controversial topics like phytates and lectins and all those things. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy it and hopefully geek out as much as I do. Uh, Let me introduce Chris. Chris is the co-founder of the California Center for Functional Medicine, the founder of the Cresser Institute, and the host of the top-ranked health podcast, Revolution Health Radio. He's also the creator of ChrisCresser.com and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. He's one of the most respected clinicians and educators in the field of functional medicine and ancestral health and has trained over 2,000 clinicians and health coaches in over 50 countries in his unique approach. Chris was named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by Greatest and has appeared as a featured guest on Dr. Oz. Time, The Atlantic, NPR, Fox and & Friends, and other national media outlets. He has recently launched Adapt Naturals, a supplement line designed to add back in what mo- the modern world has squeezed out 
and help people perform their best. So with that, now let's jump to my interview with Chris. So Chris, I am so honored to have you here. I was a little overwhelmed yesterday trying to narrow down what to talk about and how to best use your time because you have such a deep knowledge about literally like everything when it comes to nutrition and root causes and the gut microbiome and functional medicine. So I ended up polling my audience and we have a lot of really great questions to get to, mostly surrounding you know, chronic gut problems and the gut microbiome. But we're also um, going to touch a little bit on nutrition and supplements because, you know, I've learned so much from you over the years about um, nutrient density and specifically how n- lack of nutrients or nutrient deficiencies can lead to long-term chronic issues. So you've been talking about gut health for a very long time. Um, and I, I remember a time, you know, it doesn't feel that long ago where intestinal permeability and or leaky gut was thought to be pseudoscience. So, and now obviously I feel like more people are talking about it. We have a lot of research about it. Um, so I want to know just to start, what is maybe one or two things that you've learned about gut health and the microbiome in the last year from the literature that you find interesting or kind of like a 2.0 about what we know about the gut microbiome? Well, thanks, Noah, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, yeah, it, I, I have research alerts set up for a, a lot of the topics that I follow, including gut health. And so I get, I see new studies pretty much every day. And it's hard to keep up, frankly. It's it's such an exciting area of research. And there's so many new um, studies being published that really are changing our view of how important gut health is to overall health. I mean, we already know that on a basic level, but I, even I'm surprised, you know, with some of the studies that I see. So, so for example, uh, a few months ago, there was a study published um, suggesting that fecal transplants can actually reverse the hallmarks of aging. So uh, as I'm sure some of your uh, listeners know fecal transplants are when um, you transplant uh, fecal matter from a healthy human into someone who has, you know, typically gastrointestinal or other health problems. It's it's like the turbo, super, super duper turbo probiotic intervention, right? <laughs> right. Because um, we have trillions of microbes in our gut and even the strongest probiotics typically only have billions of organisms. So in, in some way, um, you know, fecal transplant is orders of magnitude more potent than what you can get from taking over the counter probiotics. And in this study, they found that um, transplant, and this was done in mice to be clear, but transplanting the fecal microbiota from young mice into older mice can actually reverse the hallmarks of aging in the gut, the eyes, and the brain. So all of these different markers of inflammation and um antioxidant status and and mitochondrial function and some of the other things that we use to to assess aging were uh, almost reversed in these mice that had the fecal transplant to the point where they actually appeared to be decades younger than they were <laughs> before you know in human ter- in human terms right, m- right. mice don't live that long but um and so, I mean, I'm, that's just incredible. And it, it's a, it's a, such a testament to how important the gut is to overall health because aging 
is really just a breakdown in all of the processes that contribute to health and well-being. And so it's it's clear from this study that um, gut health is 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 really touching on all of those different processes. So that's that I thought that was pretty amazing, pretty phenomenal. Um, and please don't go out and do any DIY fecal transplants um, <laughs> when you when you hear this. Uh, first of all, we need to you know replicate these findings in humans. Mice are are similar in a lot of ways, but not the same. And and there have been there have been examples of studies in the past that were, you know, where we found certain things to be true in mice and rats, and then they weren't true in humans. So that's uh, number one. Number two is fecal transplants are potentially dangerous. Actually, if you transplant fecal matter from uh, someone else, in you know who is maybe healthy and by all appearances is doing just fine, but maybe they have a parasite that they've actually learned to live in in you know symbiosis with. It's not affecting them, but when that gets transplanted into somebody that doesn't have a healthy gut, then that could be really problematic. So I, I doubt that many people are signing up for, for you know, thinking they're going to go and do this, but I had to say that because I have actually heard of, of cases of that happening um, mm-hmm. because people get understandably really excited, uh, you know, about the potential and this is not a procedure that, that's without risk. So super exciting, like really worth exploring further and, and, and just, you don't necessarily need to get a fecal transplant to to benefit from this. You know, you can do all the other things we talk about to improve gut health. So eating a nutrient-dense whole foods diet, making sure you're eating enough fermentable fiber to nourish your beneficial gut bacteria. That's really critical. Um, bone broth, fermented foods, you know, all the, all of the typical things. So the second one that's really interesting, and this is not new for me at least. Um, I've been tracking this for a number of years and I've actually seen this in my practice with patients um, that we that, that want to focus on this. But there was a new study that just came out kind of revealing some of the mechanisms. So uh, maybe 10 years ago, I saw I saw some studies suggesting that people who are dairy intolerant could actually reverse that by consuming small amounts of pro, of fermented dairy, like kefir or yogurt in particular. And if they did it in a certain way where they consume like a little bit to start with and then gradually ramped up over time, the speculation was that there was like a horizontal gene transfer between the bacteria in the kefir and the yogurt and the bacteria in the gut. So put another way, it's almost like the bacteria in the in the yogurt and kefir were teaching our own intestinal bacteria how to tolerate the lactose mm. in, in the dairy products. And so... This new study, it was just published actually um, this week or, or, or at the end of last week, found that um, in allergic mice, uh, mice with allergies, not just to dairy, but to a whole bunch of different uh, foods and environmental antigens, if they consumed a form of butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid that's often used to treat patients with ulcerative colitis and things like that, then they actually were protected against even peanut allergy, which is one of the most severe allergies. And the scientists speculated that that same treatment might also counteract other food allergies as well as inflammatory conditions, autoimmune disease, et cetera. So I've been talking about the health benefits of butyrate for a long time. 
it's produced naturally when we consume fi fermentable fiber because it's a byproduct of, of uh, bacteria metabolizing carbohydrate or fiber. And you can also supplement with it, but that's a bit more challenging because when you consume oral butyrate in a capsule form, it tends to just get absorbed in the stomach or small intestine. It doesn't make it to the colon where it's needed. Um, but there are some ways to supplement with it. And, and I think in general, the best way to increase butyrate production is just by eating more fermentable fibers. So those are two studies that are really interesting to me and, you know, like that we can potentially reverse aging and potentially reverse allergies and food allergies by altering the composition of a gut microbiome. Yeah, that's really amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I when you said uh, this is an anti-aging thing, you know, you think of how much money spent on anti-aging products and skincare and stuff like that. So I imagine anti-aging fecal transplant places popping up everywhere. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned the risks because everything, you know, there's there with reward always comes. Well, not always, but sometimes comes risks and you have to weigh those. Um, so I, I find that so interesting, especially, you know, now that I have two little ones, um, you realize how serious allergies are for kids. Um, and even, you know, my kid just started, started school yesterday. And so many of the classrooms have this like severe allergy warning yeah. on the door because certain foods cannot cross that line. And it's heartbreaking to think about how, you know, parents having to go through that. And I have been seeing some of this, this interesting reversal of the severity of peanut allergies by introducing microscopic little doses of peanut. Um, and it's awesome to hear that that's happening with dairy too, because dairy is kind of a, a personal issue for me that I'm actually actively struggling with because I went to Mexico and tested the waters and the waters were not warm. It was, it was not a good test. So, mm -hmm. um, so it's, it, it's something definitely to, that we'll keep an eye on. Cause I, I love that stuff. I think that that, that can help so many people and parents. So. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it is true. Like it, things have changed. Like when I was growing up, you know, people brought peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to school. Not saying that was, a, it was a great option in terms <laughs> right. of healthfulness, but you know, there, there, there wasn't the, we weren't in the situation that we're in now where you can't even get close to a school with nuts because so many kids have severe nut allergies. And, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And in, in, in fact, the major reason being disruption of the gut microbiome and, and that unfortunately has compounding effects over time because, you know, my generation was the first that grew up on antibiotics. Like they were handed out like candy. And uh, we know that a mother's gut flora is essentially passed down to, to, to her child. That uh, you know, the first imprint of the child's gut microbiome is, is going to be in the vaginal canal during birth. And so the, the child essentially inherits the, the, the mother's gut flora, uh, for better or for worse. And I think with each successive generation, we're seeing, a uh, 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 continued decline in gut health and right. then an, in and, and a consequent increase in things like allergies, autoimmune disease, asthma, um, and other immune gut immune related issues, uh, for that reason. So this is why, you know, like, going back to the whole anti-aging conversation, there's this mistaken belief that 
we need all of these like super fancy things to stop aging um and to promote gut health and and you know balance and regulate our immune system but it's really the basics that are often the most important and that people tend to tend to forget or leave out and mm-hmm. you know uh, i mentioned you know so so an example of that is like yes fecal transplants very exciting you know there's maybe a way that that could be applied clinically in the future but in the short term there's lots of things we can do to improve our gut health and you know uh one of the products i included in my supplement line that i reached uh, i launched recently was a is a mushroom product and one of the reasons i'm such a huge fan of mushrooms is that they are the richest dietary source of beta glucan and beta glucan is a soluble fiber that has that is has a powerful effect on feeding the gut microbiome but also has distinct effects on the gut immune system so it helps uh you know 70 80% of our immune system is in our gut and so these are uh beta glucans are known as biologic response modifiers which means they actually activate um, the gut immune system and our immune system overall, which helps protect against pathogens, which has obvious um, relevance today in the world that we live in, and then also helps to balance and regulate the immune system. So you can get these by consuming certain species of mushrooms in your diet, um, or if you're not doing that regularly, you can take a mushroom supplement. But like these are much simpler and low-tech methods yes. of getting benefits than like a fecal transplant, for example, uh, or even, you know, a, a butyrate enema, which is like a, a, one of the ways that butyrate is typically administered in a clinical setting is via enema. Because as I said before, it doesn't, if you take it orally, it often doesn't reach the colon uh, where it's needed. So um, yeah, there are always simp- there are almost always simpler steps that we can take to achieve this the same end. Yeah, I I appreciate simple for the um, beta glucan supplement that you have. Is it a powder that you like sprinkle on things, or is it a pill? They're capsules, okay. um, but it's a it's a blend of eight mushrooms. So it's reishi, turkey tail, lion's mane, chaga. Uh, agaricus, uh, maitake, shiitake, and cordyceps, which are eight, okay. uh, the the eight most researched mushrooms for health benefits. And so it's actually a complete extract of the mushroom with all of the different parts of the mushroom, the mycelium, the fruiting body, et cetera, so that you get, it's essentially like eating the mushrooms, but mm-hmm. you're taking them in a capsule form instead, because some of the mushrooms are highly beneficial, but you can't eat them, or at least you won't want to. <laughs> They're right. extremely bitter and chewy. Um, and the way that you we typically use them in a in a in a clinical setting would be uh, to make a decoction, like in Chinese medicine. If you've ever seen like the the raw herbs and that you simmer and boil in the water, oftentimes yes. those will have mushrooms. Um, but if you've ever tasted those or even smelled them, <laughs> you know that many people are not going to be willing to do that. Um, right. So you, you you know you can either make a tea or you can make a, a decoction or a tincture or something like that. But I think the easiest way to do it is often just to to desiccate them in a pow- you know in powder form and and put them in capsules. Yeah. Okay. We will link to um, that in the show notes. Um, anything that we talk about here today. 
So I'll have that um, on my website too. You can go to coconutsandcuttleballs.com and then click podcasts at the top. And uh, if you're listening to this in um, more recent, you, you know, it's new in your podcast app, you'll see Chris Cresser right at the top, but um, you can also search that on my website. So we'll make sure to link to everything because I do have a feeling we'll probably be mentioning a lot of things today. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting, Chris, that you're talking about more is, and this is a new word for me, pleiotropy. Is that correct? Am I saying Ply- that correct? Yeah, close. Pleiotropy or pleiotropic. Pleiotropy. Okay. So, and I kind of looked into this a little bit more and what, you know, it is. And and I, I find it really interesting because I, I think, you know, you and I both have seen this community changed a lot, but also we see a lot of people struggling to get to the root cause. Everybody wants to know what's going on, what's the thing. And so a lot of people go through a lot of testing and spend a ton of money trying to figure out what is going on and what's going to fix my problem. And you've been kind of talking about this new concept and comparing it to, you know, this root cause or root causeism when it comes to resolving health challenges. So talk to me about why you're kind of moving more towards that. Yeah. So to be clear, I'm still a huge believer in uh, finding a root cause of a problem and addressing it at that level whenever that's possible. Um, so to use a simple example, if somebody has you know prediabetes and they're overweight and they have high blood pressure, the first thing I'm going to do if they come to see me in the clinic is to ask them about their diet and lifestyle. You know, because that is right. a condition that is typically driven by diet and lifestyle. And, you know, some genetic contribution, of course, but um, it, it, th- that is the, the key insight of functional medicine. And it's, it's not exclusive to functional medicine. Other forms of traditional medicine have, have taken that approach as well. But um, that's not going away. Like, that's still super important. And arguably for the general population, it's the most important thing uh, still. Mm-hmm. What what I what I began to realize after you know over 15 years of treating patients, however, and my patient population is probably more similar to your audience in the sense that I never have a bunch of people who are just following the standard American diet and 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 making you know poor lifestyle choices across the board. My patient population was, were people who were already doing a lot of the right things, but they were still struggling mm-hmm. and. Uh, what I found in that in that group of people, uh, in which I would include myself, you know, previously when I was sick and dealing with chronic illness, was that it's easy to get hyper focused on finding the root cause, and that can actually distract us from doing all of the other things in our life that that actually contribute to health. And uh, so, an example of that would be just you know, a simple example would be. After dinner, if you have some time and you put the kids to bed, um, there's different ways you could spend that time. One would be to spend a couple hours on the internet researching, you know, reading articles, trying to find kind of the latest theories or answers about, you know, what's happening with with your health. Or you could potentially, you know, take a walk with your partner um, or, you know, play with your dog or um, play a musical instrument or lie down and do some breathing or stress management or meditation or, you know, any number of things that would have like a direct and immediate subjective impact on your health. And when we're sick, we tend to think that 
that former step, you know, going and trying to find the answer, that's what's going to actually bring us back to health. And sometimes that's necessary. Uh, and sometimes we do gain insights in that process that are valuable and important. But if we only do that and we stop attending to the the things that we do on a moment to moment, day by day, week by week basis that actually contribute to health, I think we can we can get off track. And you know, another way of of talking about this is that health is a process rather than an outcome. So uh, we tend to think, you know, health is is something that it's going to we're going to arrive at that destination once we line up all of everything in the, in in just the right way. But in reality, in my experience, my own experience in treating patients, health is something that we develop and actively cultivate, again, on a moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day basis. And that's that's pleiotropy. So pleiotropy or pleiotropic, it's a word that I took from the, the scientific world. It's, it's often used in the context of genetics. Uh, and all and drug development, believe it or not. So it's uh, when something when something has a pleiotropic effect, it means that it has a it benefits multiple different systems or has multiple different benefits. So the example that all, you and all of your audience will be most familiar with is exercise. So you can look in the research literature and see like exercise has almost infinite number of positive side effects <laughs> that, you know, it's <laughs> right. like, it's associated, like every disease state, every health condition, everything that we could possibly think of, you look in the scientific literature and you'll find studies that, that say exercise improves that, you know, whether you're talking about brain health or gut health or stress or, you know, lowering the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's and, um, you know, hormone balance, whatever. So that's like, that's it. That's one intervention that has pleiotropic benefits. And so over the years, I started to really encourage my patients to pursue as many of those types of interventions as possible. So a healthy diet, of course, is another pleiotropic intervention. It benefits everything. Sauna has powerful pleiotropic effects. It doesn't just do one thing. It then it has many, many different benefits. It's anti-inflammatory. It helps with detoxification. It stimulates mitochondrial function. When you're supplementing, you want to be thinking about pleiotropy, you know, rather than taking one isolated nutrient that has one effect, you want to be thinking about nutrients, like I mentioned, beta-glucans or, um, you know, organ meats or other kind of um, nutrients that have a wide range of benefits instead of just, you know, one thing. So I think these concepts are best combined where, you know, you try, you, you try to find the underlying cause of the condition if you can, and there's often not just one, right? It could be multiple different causes. Um, but that's that shouldn't be your, the only thing that you do and it shouldn't be at the expense of doing of all of taking all of these other steps on a day-to-day -day basis that contribute to health so that's the gist of it it is back to school season which means our kids are going to bring home all those lovely germs and colds and share them with their friends and you can do everything right wash your hands keep your hands away from your face but 
you still can get sick. And frankly, it's a part of how your immune system becomes stronger. The best way to support your body in fighting infections is to support it from the inside out, specifically with a high quality probiotic like uh, Bioptimizers P3OM. Taking care of your gut isn't just about digestion. It's where your immune system lives and your gut plays such an important role in your ability to fight off viruses and keep pathogenic bacteria at bay. P3OM is one of the probiotics that I take and rotate. It's a proteolytic probiotic, meaning it's really good at breaking down protein and it's proven to be maintainable in the human digestive tract. There's no reason to spend thousands of dollars at health food stores on a probiotic that may not do anything. P3OM is called the Navy SEAL by researchers due to its ability to kill bad bacteria. You can even see a video of P3OM breaking down food at p3om.com forward slash well-fed. Here's some awesome news. You can get 10% off P3OM right now by going to p3, the letter O-M.com forward slash well-fed and using the coupon code WELLFED10. And if your order is not everything you hoped for, their support team will give you all your money back, no questions asked. Just visit p3om.com forward slash WELLFED and get a 10% discount with coupon code WELLFED10. I love it. Yeah, I love it. And I think that that is kind of the missing piece for so many people. I mean, even on both sides of the spectrum, but especially like, you know, you, you mentioned exercise. I've been on my exercise soapbox for, I feel like years. I'm like, it does everything. Like yeah. if you want to age, you know, like healthfully and like maintain balance and bone density, like I'm thinking about my 70 year old body, not just my 30 and my 36, 36 year old body, you know, like that's, that's what I'm thinking of now is like what, and exercise is the easy button is, is the red, you know, it's your, it's your golden ticket. But the other big thing that I'm thinking of too, is like sleep or even just now social and interactions in community. Like I, I feel like so many, if you look at a lot of patients or, um, you know, clients or even people in this community who are really struggling with an issue it's like the basics still aren't even there um, in terms of like, well, yeah, I haven't really been getting my sleep or, oh, yeah, I mean, how much time do you spend on Facebook or how much time do you spend scrolling on Instagram? And what, like you said, what could you do with that time instead of, and even if you are not 100%, even if you are not um, feeling up to it, sometimes we have to put ourselves in those situations so that we create those new you know, foundations and it gets a little bit easier next time. So even though you don't feel like exercising because maybe you do feel sick or things are off, or maybe you don't feel like going to, you know, coffee with somebody or church or catching up with a friend, like those are the things that we have to proactively do to kind of create those roadways so that that's, we get ourselves back into that system, which is a healthful system, right? Support, sunshine, connection, exercise, and we know that that will help. It's just getting over that that hump to get um, to make that normal again. Absolutely, and yeah. it's hard. You know, life is full, and yeah. it, we we live in uh, an environment where there are more distractions than we've ever faced in the history of humanity. Um, and right. and so there are constant demands on our attention, and you know, the proliferation of smartphones and screens and social media, which of course all have benefits too. Have I think have made it more and more challenging for people to do get these uh, basic kind of things dialed in, mm -hmm. and as you pointed out, that is the core foundation of health. And 
you know, analogy I sometimes use is like, if you're like focusing on biohacking and like all of these like super advanced interventions, but you haven't dialed in the basics, that's like building a house on quicksand, right? You know, like, uh, or, or like, you know, decorating the house before you've even really laid the foundation, you know, that it, it's not going to work long-term and the basics are always far more important than, um, the intervent, you know, then, then the more sort of, um, biohacky, if you will, in interventions. <laughs> yeah. And, right. you know, like I had David Sinclair on my podcast, who's a renowned Harvard expert on aging. You know, he's probably one of the foremost authorities in the world on the aging process, phenomenal, um, scientist and great guy. And we, you know, a lot of the podcasts, we were talking about things like resveratrol and NM, you know, NR and in increasing NAD levels and, metformin which he likes as an anti-aging strategy and towards the end of the show i just i just asked him you know point blank like do you think that these you know what's more important like somebody adding these things to their routine or somebody like getting their sleep and their diet and their exercise dialed in and he said you know of course it's it's the latter, but he's, he, he admitted that even he has, you know, he has trouble with that and he knows a lot of other people do. And so he's talking about these interventions and, and, and I get that, like, I, I get how hard it is right now, but I don't think we should lose sight of, and stop trying just because it's hard. Like everything that's valuable and worthwhile in life is hard. So, Isn't that um, true? so did the fact that yeah. something is hard doesn't mean that we should stop trying. Uh, and, and in fact, like those getting those things dialed in those pleiotropic interventions, sleep, um, stress management, diet, you know, healthy diet, physical activity, not just exercise, but, you know, maintaining, not sitting as much and, and maintaining, staying active throughout the day. Those things are going to have so much bigger returns than almost anything else that we could put our attention towards. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's jump into questions from the community because I think that um, some of our discussions about gut health and what to do and all that kind of stuff will come out in these questions. So the first one is from L Butler Six. She says, "Is it possible to lower chronic inflammation when you have an autoimmune disease like celiac disease?" Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we see that all the time in the clinic. Um, so the the key with autoimmunity is to uh, reduce as many of the triggers as you can. You know, there, when someone has an autoimmune condition, there are various triggers that will exacerbate um, the immune response, and that's what drives the inflammatory process. So, in the case of celiac, the most obvious is gluten, right? And it's one of the few autoimmune conditions that we know exactly what the trigger is uh, for for most people, and. It's the only one that is in, in, that, according to the conventional model, is treatable for that reason. You know, it's an identifiable trigger. You remove the trigger, but as many people with celiac know, it's not that simple. Um, Fifty percent of people with celiac disease are also intolerant of other proteins. Uh, dairy being the most common, but could also be eggs and protein, uh, soy, and uh, you know, proteins that are found in other grains, non-gluten grains like rice, etc. So if we have a patient in the clinic who is celiac and has removed gluten from their diet, um, but they're not all, you know, they're not entirely better, then we'll start to look at the, the at other potential triggers, uh, food triggers being one of the main ones, like I just mentioned, um, 
You can also look at, you know, some of the other ones that are removed in an AIP or autoimmune protocol, like nightshades and nuts uh, can be can be big players uh, for, for certain people. Um, and then we, of course, would look at the health of the gut microbiome overall. And when people have had celiac for a long period of time, that actually the intestinal villi in their gut will be blunted um, by that immune response. And so we'll use things like probiotics, prebiotics, bone broth, fermented foods, um, and supplements to help them build back their gut health overall. And that will then in turn reduce the systemic inflammatory burden. So that's the general overview. I mean, we could talk, have two podcasts, of course, talking about no. that specifically, but <laughs> that's the general yeah. idea is with autoimmunity, figure out what those underlying triggers are. Step one, address those. And then step two, as you, you won't be surprised to hear, is embracing those pleiotropic interventions. So stress, we know, is a huge trigger of autoimmunity. I, I've found that it's actually an even bigger trigger than diet for many of my patients. Um, and the times that they'll have a flare of their condition, whether it's Hashimoto's or celiac or you know, IBD, like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, is when they have a, a an intense stressful period in their life. So, yeah. you know, meditation, mindfulness, deep breathing, uh, yoga, Tai Chi, whatever it is that helps to, to manage stress is super critical there. And then you know, spending time in nature, getting enough sun, all the things we talked about before, those pleiotropic interventions can also reduce the systemic inflammatory load. Most, most of us tend to think of inflammation as something that's purely driven by diet or nutrients or something like that. But there's so many studies showing how exercise reduces inflammation, sleep reduces inflammation, even spending time outside in nature reduces inflammation. Uh, spending less time on screens reduces inflammation. So again, just all of those pleiotropic uh, interventions. Yeah, I um I started a garden this year as a side note because you know sustainability and wanting to be a little bit more yeah. self sufficient. And um, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, get in the garden and spend some time. But I tell you what, some of those little buggers are. <laughs> I don't know how stress relieving they are because when you yeah. take all this time to plant your carrots and then you go to pull them up and all you see are bugs trying to eat your carrots, it's not so stress relieving, but I have to work on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it's still worthwhile. And, still worthwhile. Yeah. And and then you you get to see like, this is the, the natural world that this we live in. how it works. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, I just, just for the, just for fun, um, as you were talking about gardening, I, I pulled up. PubMed, and there's a study here, community gardening and effects on stress, well-being, and resilience, which found that uh, people who you know, who have access to community garden and spend time there have have you know, improved stress tolerance, overall well-being, and and lower uh, and and in, increased resilience. And then there's another one, gardening activities and physical health, a review of the evidence. Um, wow. You know, so so yeah, like. It's weird. You you might never think that there would be studies published on gardening and right. you know in, inflammatory markers and general health right. and well being, but there are, and that's true for again, that's true for nature bathing. You know, forest bathing. You can go in there and find studies about how that helps reset the circadian rhythm. Even just one weekend of camping and being off the grid can can really totally reset cir circadian biology and help people start to be able to get to bed at a normal time and sleep through the night. So. It's, it's, it's like, you know, 
a lot of that stuff is common sense, but I think it's helpful to see, you know, studies that actually back it up. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Um, Okay, so this is a big question that is from Jennifer, but I do get this question all the time, and I'm sure you get it too, is how do you find the root cause of, let's say, just a chronic inflammatory disorder or chronic digestive issue? So are there certain tests that everybody should be taking or people should be prioritizing? She says in particular for her, she has a chronic gut issue that keeps happening um, SIBO, candida, bloating, diarrhea. My primary care physician suggested this is an inflammatory disease due to something like chronic Epstein-Barr that I had years ago. So like testing, <laughs> what, what yeah. do people need to do? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. And, and, yeah. um, so, you know, I will, I'll tell you the testing that we typically do on patients who have gut issues. So one would be a SIBO breath test. And I think that is important if you have ongoing symptoms that are, you know, could be SIBO. You can't diagnose SIBO just from symptoms alone. You really do have to get that breath test. That's that's the um, best way of, of diagnosing it at this point. Um, then we'll do a com- comprehensive stool analysis that looks for pathogens like uh fungal organisms and, and bacteria and parasites and even viruses. Um, and then looks at a whole bunch of functional gastrointestinal markers like calprotectin, lactoferrin, which are, and lysozyme, which are inflammatory markers, short chain fatty acids, um, you know, fat and carbohydrate levels in the stool, et cetera. So like, you know, Genova, Doctors Data, a bunch of other labs offer tests like that. And then we off, often will also do a uh, urine organic acids test, which gives us some additional information about the gut and food intolerance uh, uh, testing, which, you know, is, tech, is blood test. It's not a stool test, but it's still, it gives us insight into what's happening in, in the gut because, you know, you find you're gluten intolerant or dairy intolerant or something like that, that can obviously make a big difference. And if, if you're eating a food that you're intolerant of every day or even a few times a week, that's going to keep you in a constant state of, of gut inflammation. So, so those are the main tests. Unfortunately, not everyone has access to those kinds of tests unless they're working with a functional medicine provider because general practitioners don't usually aren't trained in, in them and don't have accounts set up with those labs and don't know how to interpret the results of those labs, uh, even if they do order them. So if you don't have access to that, that kind of testing, um, there are a few different things you can do. You know, one is to try elimination diets on your own. So that would just be testing foods that you think you might be intolerant of. You know, most people have some idea, you know, based on their own experience, like you mentioned dairy for yourself and lots of people like, are like, I don't know, I eat that food. And I just noticed I kind of don't feel that well the next day. And so, you know, just make a list of what those foods are and take them out of your diet for a couple of weeks and see what happens. You don't, it doesn't have to be high tech. You know, that, that actually is elimination provocation protocols are still the gold standard when it comes to food allergy and food intolerance, um, because the testing is not perfectly accurate. So that's, you know, one thing you can do taking, uh, probiotic, high quality probiotic, um, consuming more fermentable fiber, bone broth, fermented foods, things like that to improve your overall gut health. That can help too, of course, and can reduce the systemic inflammatory burden. Um, Viruses, that's a whole nother (laughs) ball of wax, so to speak. It's definitely true that 
Epstein-Barr and other viruses can have long-term effects, but I th- I think I think it's more rare than than is often um, con- considered in the at least in the integrative medical community. There there seems to be a growing trend of attributing a lot of health chronic health problems to Epstein-Barr, and the problem I have with that is that. 85% of us or more were exposed to Epstein-Barr when we were younger. So if you test someone for it, virtually everyone is going to have antibodies. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that Epstein-Barr is currently active and is causing problems. Uh, it, I don't doubt that it does in some people. I've seen it myself, but it's not, I think it's 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 verging into the territory of like candida and other previous sort of fad diagnoses that um, you know, where I see a growing number of people attributing all of their health problems to that. And I think it takes people down the wrong road. Interesting. Um, okay. This is a good follow-up question because this is another, not a fad, but definitely more people are talking about it. This is from Sandra. She says, should everybody be doing testing to see if they have parasites? I've been hearing about parasites more and more, and it seems like most people probably have them, especially if you've traveled or eaten sushi. Should we proactively do cleanses every now and then to get rid of them? And if so, which type of parasite cleanse is best? Yeah, I don't think that's necessary for everybody. Um, you know, for example, if you're healthy and well and you're you've got good, you know, you're you're exercising, you have good exercise tolerance and recovery, and you're sleeping well and you don't really have any complaints. I don't think there's any reason to go looking for a problem if there if there isn't one. You know, problems right. tend to find find us uh, whether we want them to or not. And so, if we're feeling well and performing well and everything is good, I would say just enjoy that as much as you can <laughs> because our our health is precious and we never know you know what's right. going to happen and what's going to change over time. And I do think that that is just as a side note that isn't another issue in the functional and integrative medicine communities that we're a part of is this phenomenon of the worried well, you know, like if we always are looking for what's broken, then we're almost inevitably going to find something or, or something that we think is broken. And, um, you know, one of my mentors in medicine used to say, if you look for something hard enough, you'll, you'll typically find it. And, and that was in reference to like over-testing and over-analyzing and over-thinking about all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I really agree with that. And especially over time, I've come to appreciate the wisdom of, of that advice he gave me many years ago. Um, having said that, of course, parasites are an issue for some people, and they're way more common than most, most clinicians realize. And um, and you don't have to have traveled actually uh, uh, to a third world country or developing country to 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 get a parasite. They're ubiquitous even here in the U.S. You can go camping and drink out of a stream and get cryptosporidium and or cyclospora. It happens all the time. I've seen that happen with patients. You can uh, eat basil that was imported from Guatemala and washed in contaminated water down there and develop cyclospora. That happened to me. I was. In the Bay Area at the time, I went. We had Vietnamese food at a, a really good restaurant. And it was, you know, like a high quality restaurant. And there, I got caught in this uh, cyclospora outbreak that happened in Berkeley. I got a call. You know, I got sick. I went, got tested, and then I got a call from the Berkeley Health Department saying, you know, we saw that you tested positive for cyclospora. There's an outbreak, and and they were able oh. to trace it. <clears throat> they were able to trace it back to 
basil that was in the pho that I ate in no. the restaurant. That, that basil had 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 come from Guatemala. I mean, it was pretty amazing that they were able to actually trace this down. It's like a detective wow. story, but. So that's just one example of like, you know, I'm, I'm a major metropolitan area, like mm. really high quality restaurant, still can't necessarily protect yourself from that. Now, in that case, I didn't need any testing to know I had a parasite. <laughs> like it yeah. was blatantly obvious. And then the testing kind of backed, backed it up. There are situations where people are harboring parasites that are contributing to chronic health problems and they may not know it. So blastocystis hominis is a good example it's the most common parasite infection worldwide. And the really tricky thing about it is that for some people, no problem. They can have blastocystis in their gut. They don't have any symptoms. They're perfectly fine. For other people, it can cause all kinds of GI symptoms, skin rashes, fatigue, lethargy, hormone imbalance, brain fog, et cetera. And they may not even know that they have it because you know primary care providers don't routinely uh, test for parasites. So mm. I would say if you do have symptoms that are unexplained and you haven't been able to trace them to any particular thing, and you've tried a lot of the things that we're talking about on this show, then seeing a functional or integrative medicine provider who can run, an, uh, you know, one of the more modern, accurate uh, stool tests that will pick up on a lot of these pathogens using the DNA or PCR uh, techniques, which are much more sensitive and able to detect these kinds of organisms, is a really good step. Uh, it's difficult to to really diagnose yourself with a parasite based on symptoms. A lot of people tell me they see parasites in their stool, and I ask them if they have superhuman telescopic vision because it's not possible to see parasites in, in your stool. <laughs> I mean, there are some macroscopic worms <laughs> that you can get that are visible with the naked eye, but those are super rare. Um, and most people are looking not to be gross here, but they're looking at mucus or other things in their stool that are not parasites. So you really actually have to get tested in order to know if you have one. Got it. Okay. Let's jump into some of these nutrition questions because I find some of these, these are really interesting. So um, this is from Vanessa of Chrome. She says, is removing all lectins and phytates required or is 80% good enough? Uh, can I choose none of the above? <laughs> um, I don't think we have to remove lectins or, or phytates from our diet. Uh, I think if you look at at historical consumption, like human beings have been eating foods with lectins and phytate for a very long time. And as long as you're eating those fruits and vegetables and other, you know, and even, you know, properly prepared, small amounts of properly prepared legumes, like soaked lentils or, or soaked whole grains, uh, I don't think those are the best foods, you know, and certainly you don't want to base your whole diet around them, like in a, in a plant-based diet, but if you're eating those in moderation in the context of a nutrient-dense diet with organ meats and shellfish and fish and meat and eggs and, you know, all of those kinds of foods, I don't think, and you don't have any digestive reaction to them, I think they're fine. I, I'm, um, you know, with all due respect to Dr. Gundry, who I think has made some great contributions, I, 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 I definitely take issue with the science that he used in his book to demonize lectins and... I just don't think there's a, a a clear scientific basis for removing lectins from our diet uh, in general. Now, 
there are some people who, particularly those with autoimmune disease, who might be particularly sensitive to lectins. And in in that case, yes, you know, if you know you have a demonstrated, uh, you know, sensitivity to lectins, where you eat foods that contain lectins and you have symptoms, your autoimmune disease get worse. Absolutely, it might make sense to it would make sense to limit those foods in that in that case but just for the general public and even even other people with chronic diseases who don't have any observable lectin sensitivity i would not remove those foods a lot of foods with lectin high levels of lectins are super healthy nutrient dense foods that we want to have in our diet now phytate is slightly different because the main concern about phy- phytate is that they f- foods that are high in phytates can inhibit the absorption of uh minerals nutrients so for example right. calcium Spinach is is a very rich source of calcium on paper, but it's also very high in phytates. And so if you eat spinach, you will only absorb about 5% of the calcium in spinach. Now that's compared to a glass of milk, which of course many people can't have for for other reasons, but the bioavailability of calcium in milk is like 35%. So we're talking about a sevenfold higher rate of absorption of calcium from milk than you would get from eating spinach here's where people go off the rails. That's not a reason not to eat spinach. That just, that just means that you're not going to get a lot of calcium from spinach or other minerals, but spinach is loaded with a whole bunch of other great nutrients that phytic acid doesn't interfere with. And you just need to then make sure that you're eating other sources of bioavailable calcium, like dairy, if you are able to, uh, you know, if you tolerate dairy or uh, bone-in canned salmon, for example, where the the bones are really soft and you can eat them. Fantastic source of calcium. Cruciferous vegetables like broccoli are great source of calcium, and and they don't they're not high in phytic acid, so you actually absorb the bioavailability of of calcium from broccoli is pretty is not quite to the level of dairy, but it's much higher than calcium. So that's a key difference, right? Is like. Phytic acid inhibits absorption of some minerals, but that's not a reason to avoid consuming any phytic acid in any food. Right. Love it. Okay. Childish underscore bamb one and zero. Sorry. Reading um, screen names is not my strong suit. Uh, She says, could a vegan diet that's high in fiber worsen IBS? Yes, definitely. Um, So... There's two types of fiber. Uh, One is insoluble fiber and the other is soluble fiber. So soluble fiber forms a a gel-like mucoliginous substance in our gut that coats our gut and typically has a soothing effect on digestion and actually improves digestion, improves uh, bowel regularity. It actually can help with both diarrhea and constipation, which is unusual. You know, typically you would expect one effect over the other. Insoluble fiber is fiber that's not soluble in water. And it's like, think of it as like roughage. So it will typically be in like the stems of vegetables or nuts tend to be high in in, in insoluble fiber. The skins or shells or outer coverings of foods or vegetables. So like the uh, the skin of an almond or um, the skin of an apple is really high in insoluble fiber, whereas the flesh tends to be higher in soluble fiber. A lot of studies have found that diets higher in insoluble fiber can aggravate IBS. And that would definitely be true of a vegan diet if you're eating a lot of whole grains or whole you know, plant foods that are rich in insoluble fiber. 
Whereas diets that are have you know a good amount of soluble fiber tend to improve gut health. And they actually the the other key thing about soluble fiber is that it uh, has a much bigger impact on feeding the beneficial gut bacteria. So the they can't really break down insoluble fiber in the same way. Um, whereas they are able to do that with soluble fiber. So I think especially, you know, I'm not saying insoluble fiber is bad. Definitely not. You know, please don't go out and now cross that off your list and, and make that another thing not to eat. But the question specifically was, can a diet that's high in fiber affect, you know, a, a vegan diet high in fiber negatively affect gut health? And, and the answer is definitely yes, but it tends to be more the case with insoluble fiber than soluble fiber. I love adaptogens. I love them. I take them every day. I used to be that way with coffee. Let's be honest. I would need it every morning, but now I love the feeling that I get from adaptogens and it's a much more healthful <laughs> daily habit. That's what we all want, more, right? More, more healthful daily habits that actually supports my body's physiology. Adaptogens are herbs and functional mushrooms that help your body adapt to stress. They essentially boost your resistance and tolerance when it comes to emotional and physical stress. They are good for stress support, adrenal dysfunction, hormone imbalances, anxiety, fatigue, you name it, adaptogens can help. The more I research adaptogens, the more I realize the easiest and best way to enjoy adaptogens is with superfood blends that can be added to water. Now I drink Organifi Red Juice three to four times a week, mostly mid-morning, and it's incredible for energy support and focus. It's a red berry antioxidant blend that has cordyceps, rhodiola, and reishi. They also have a green juice, which has ashwagandha in it. It's great for stress and recovery, especially if you're working out on a regular basis. And my favorite is Organifi Gold. It's my favorite nightcap. It's a sweet little warm drink. You can take it at night. It's got reishi. If you've got anxiety or your mind is spinning at night, drink that as your nightcap. It is so good and it's calming. All of Organifi's superfood adaptogen blends are 100% certified organic and contain high quality ingredients. And they're also free of fillers and they taste really good and have clinical doses of adaptogens. You can support your body, energy, immunity, and stress with Organifi. Organifi takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. Go to Organifi.com forward slash wellness fed and use the code wellfed for 20% off. That's Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash wellfed and use the code wellfed for 20% off your entire order. Okay. So this is the age old question that I'm sure you've gotten before, <laughs> but if somebody, this is from Gigi Lynn, she says, if I suspect to have a hormone issue, so you know, symptoms of a hormone imbalance for her in particular, it's hormonal migraines. Do I work on balancing the hormones or really focusing maybe on liver support and, you know, reducing endocrine disruptors, whatever? Or am I focusing, should I be focusing on gut health? Since we know that both, you know, are interconnected, how do people know where to spend their time? Is it balancing hormones or focusing on gut health so that we can actually eliminate the hormones? That's a really astute question actually and um this comes up a lot in my practitioner training program because people are often surprised the clinicians that i train to to find out that we don't actually cover 
male and female hormone balancing in the first year of the training. And there's a, there, it's not because I forgot about it. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's <laughs> right. definitely a, a reason for that, which is that I found in my practice, also in the research that the basic things that we do to improve our overall health and well-being, balancing our blood sugar, for example, um, improving our metabolic health overall, like maintaining a healthy weight, getting enough sleep, managing our gut health, eating a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. Those things are far more important for hormone balance than for most people, than like taking hormones or even taking supplements or herbs that directly affect hormones or even doing like liver detox type of things. Um, nothing in the body exists in isolation. The hormone, the system that governs and, and balances and regulates hormones depends on you know, probably 30 different micronutrients. If you look at like the cascade of, of functions that happens from the signaling in the brain, you know, in the hypothalamus and pituitary, the, those hormones that are produced then act on the hormone producing glands like the thyroid or the ovaries or the testes. Every step in that process of communication involves enzymes and every enzyme has cofactors or nutrients that it needs to function properly. So if you're not getting enough of any of those nutrients, then that's going to have a profound impact on hormone balance. We know about the astrobilome. And so the astrobilome, I don't know if that that might could be a fun new term for you along with pleiotropy. Um, <laughs> the astrobilome is the a new term that was coined to um, discuss or, or recognize the connection between the microbiome, that's the ohm part, and estrogen and estrogen hmm. metabolism. That's the EST part. So, because we know now that there's a bi-directional relationship. So your estrogen levels, if they're off, can affect your gut health, your gut microbiome. And if your gut microbiome is out of whack, then that can affect your estrogen metabolism. And the same is true for progesterone. So um, I guess that would be a tricky word. Estroboprogesterone biome or something, but biome, it's a tough one, but yeah. it just goes to say that like, if I, if I were voting, I would say, focus on those basics. You mentioned gut health. If you do have a gut health issue, and even if you don't putting your energy there first would be what I would choose. And then if that doesn't do the trick, you can move on to focusing on, you know, detox and then layering in some, uh, supplements, chase berry and, and others that um, can have, you know, a more direct impact on hormone function. What do you, this is from Katie, and then we're going to jump into a little bit about, um, supplement questions before we wrap up. She says, what do you do about relentless insulin resistance and how to manage beyond doing the obvious, like working on gut health or stress or exercising? Um, and Chris, I'll just add like, so many people, I think, struggle with borderline, well, insulin resistance for a number of reasons and or just like borderline blood sugar issues. And we've been told for so long, like, you know, work on the your diet. And so I do feel like a lot of people have, what, what do you do when you have a quote unquote good diet or a holistic diet, yet you still seem to be struggling with insulin resistance or imbalanced blood sugar? Yeah. So lots of ways to approach that. So in the clinic, you know, we might, if they're on like a paleo type of diet, we might try a lower carb version of that, or even a ketogenic diet for a period of time. We might also layer in intermittent fasting or, or longer periods of fasting, like three occasional three day 
fast. You know, sometimes the addition of the fasting element, both through intermittent fasting and, and, you know, three-day fasts, along with a much lower carbohydrate intake can really help people to turn the corner. On the other hand, there are situations where that's, we don't want to do that. You know, if you imagine someone who is, you know, burning the candle at both ends, uh, this is often women, but it can be men too. You know, there's, they're, they have three kids, they're working outside the home, they're doing three wads, CrossFit gym, you know, every week. And, and like, they're just so fried, you know, their nervous system is so fried that introducing additional stressors and the ketogenic diet and fasting are definitely stressors. They can be, have a positive, they're positive stressors when you have, when you have some resilience and, and metabolic reserve, but when you're totally depleted already and you add those additional stressors, they can really take people in the wrong direction. And so we're very particular about how we decide, you know, about deciding who is a good candidate for like a keto diet or a uh, intermittent fasting or especially longer fast days. But if, if you, if overall you're, you're doing pretty well, you're getting enough sleep, uh, but you're just really struggling with metabolic issues, then that would be the first step that I would consider. If you've already done all that stuff and you're still, ha- and you still have it, you know, significant insulin resistance, your blood sugar won't come down even with fasting and keto and exercise, or if you are not a candidate for those things, because you are one of the people who is you know, really depleted and don't have much metabolic reserve. In that case, there's a two-step process. One is to start rebuilding that metabolic reserve. And that's easier said than done, you know, because people who are in that situation sometimes are not there by choice. You know, they have a, a, a busy, difficult life and and they're not choosing necessarily to to have all of the stressors that they have that that are depleting them. But but if changes can be made there. And, you know, starting to sleep more and maybe exercise differently, you know, maybe not CrossFit five times a week, but um, adding some yoga and some other more restorative types of activity in there, just toning it down a little bit. Here's an analogy that's really helpful, I think, for a lot of people. Our stress response system, our metabolic reserve is like a bank account. If you make a lot of withdrawals on your bank account and not very many deposits, you kind of know where that's going to end up, right? You you right. can't, you just can't do that indefinitely. And so you think of things like getting enough sleep, you know, lying down in the afternoon, taking a nap or doing some deep, some breathing or, or, uh, any, you know, doing some restorative yoga or stress management, uh, eating a healthy diet, um, spending time outside in nature, all of those are deposits into the bank account. Things like staying up too late, exercising too much or too rigorously, um, eating a poor diet, like being in an intense, uh, stressful situation, like those are, those are withdrawals. So the most important thing to do is balance those withdrawals and deposits so that you're not overdrawing your account constantly. The second thing is there, you know, diet and, and exercise are not the only causes or lack of exercise are not the only causes of insulin resistance. There are many other causes too. So for example, heavy metal toxicity or GI issues. Uh, you asked me at the beginning of the show about interesting research on the microbiome. There's a ton of research correlating disrupted gut microbiome and insulin resistance and metabolic problems. So addressing that, we know that, um, 
chronic infections, you know, Lyme, tick-borne diseases, latent viral infections, although I think those are somewhat rare, parasite infections, SIBO, all of these types of things can, can contribute to insulin resistance. Nutrient deficiency is a huge cause of insulin resistance. Like if you look at statistics on people with diabetes or prediabetes, virtually 100% of them have magnesium deficiency. And they're also often deficient in vitamin D and vitamin K2 and some of the B vitamins, folate, B12, et cetera. So, you know, this is maybe a good segue into nutrient status and supplementation. But, I, you know, I think virtually everyone who has insulin resistance, in my experience that I've tested for nutrient deficiency, which is everyone that comes into the clinic, because I just do that for every patient. Right. I cannot think of a patient that has insulin that had insulin resistance that I treated in 15 years that didn't have at least one, if not multiple nutrient inadequacies. So that's a, a, a really important piece that is often overlooked. Yeah. Talk to me about supplementation because I, you know, I, I always feel like I'm dancing between two worlds when it comes to supplements because I want people to get their food from diet, but I also know, or <laughs> nutrients from their food and diet, but I also don't, I I've also seen people literally take out bags of supplements and be like, here's where I'm getting all my nutrients or I'm, you know, <laughs> following a vegan diet, but I have to take all of this stuff or, well, so-and-so told me I needed to take this. So, you know, I'm taking all of these things. So it's just like, so how do we know, like, can we actually get all of our nutrients from diet? And maybe what one should we be careful about supplementing with and not just like diving in and saying, well, I'm just going to take all these pills and make sure my bases yeah. are covered. <laughs> yeah, um, this this is. This is something I've, I've, my, my, my perspective has evolved on over the last uh, 15 years. So when I first started my career, I was pretty hardcore about getting all of the nutrient needs met through food. I recognized at the time that my, that was almost impossible to do with magnesium because of soil, you know, changes in soil quality and other factors that vitamin D, a lot, of, you can't, you know, a lot of people can't meet their need for vitamin D through food alone. Or right. through sunlight. I mean, if you live in Boston, for example, in the winter, good luck getting enough sun. We'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah, vitamin <laughs> D, and and there were you know a handful of other nutrients, uh, retinol, and uh, you know that that were of like of concern for me. And but I was you know I I really believe that we should should be should be able to get all of our nutrient needs met other than those through food. I still believe that if if you really focus on the word should, <laughs> so. You know, human beings evolved to get nutrients from food. That's how our ancestors met their nutrient needs. They obviously were not taking supplements. But the what changed my mind is just the recognition that came out of my own clinical experience treating thousands of patients, then training thousands of healthcare practitioners who were also treating thousands of patients. So I had an enormous data set that I was drawing on. And then and literally testing every patient that came through the door with in, in multiple different ways for nutrient status from blood testing to saliva to urine to hair analysis to buccal cheek swabs and intracellular tests to chronometer you know where they're tracking their their diet carefully for the for 3 days to assess uh levels of nutrients that you can't test for easily in body fluids or tissues and like i just said in that 15 year period 
I can think of like 10 patients who didn't have a nutrient deficiency out of the thousands that I treated. And yeah. my patients are like the most motivated people <laughs> that, that, that are out yeah. there. They're nobody, actually trying to do it yeah, right. Th- these are people yes. who waited for six months to see me. And, you know, nobody just came in off the street and was like eating a standard American diet. They were doing everything right and they were still not getting enough. So I, you know, I just, was like, okay, either I can hold on to my view, my belief system, or I can change change it based on the real data that I'm seeing in front of me. And that led me to do a, a deep dive in the research literature where I found shocking statistics, you know, like the Linus Pauling Institute has a page that we can, I can send you the link and you can include it in your show notes. of Americans don't get enough potassium, 100%, you know, 94% don't get enough vitamin D, 92% choline, 89% vitamin E. I think magnesium is probably in the 90% now, Um, 69% of vitamin A. I mean, it it just goes on. So basically seeing that the majority of Americans are not getting enough of not just one, but several essential vitamins and minerals. And we haven't even started talking about phytonutrients like bioflavonoids or lignans or beta glucans or anything like that, that are not absolutely essential for our health. Like we're not going to die if we don't have them. But I believe now from all the research that they're essential to good health and to a long health span, which is what we all want, you know, to, to healthy aging. And so, you know, then I started to sit, to ask the question, why, like, why is it (laughs) that this is happening uh, in a, in the developed world, we're not talking about the developing world where malnutrition is rampant. We're talking about the developed world where people are not only eating enough calories, they're eating too many calories in general. Like caloric consumption has increased by 25% just in the past 20 years. So yeah, we are, we are well fed, but we're undernourished. That's a good way of looking at it. And so I found that there are like five or six key factors that explain this. So one is changes in soil quality. The easiest way to think about this is this, we have disrupted the microbiome of the soil using pesticides and chemical fertilizers and monocropping and all the other characteristics of industrial agriculture. And that means that the um, amount of nutrients that are in that soil is hasn't necessarily gone down, but the plant's ability to extract those nutrients from the soil they're growing in is much lower. So the plants will actually have fewer nutrients. There was one statistic that shocked me in a study, which was that we would have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of nutrition that our grandparents got from a single orange. So that's, that's two generations, you know, we're not, that's not, that's an eightfold decline and the nutrition in an orange in just two generations. So, I mean, that alone is is extremely disturbing. It's not just with orange and it's not single nutrients. You see declines in magnesium, vitamin C, um, all of the minerals and, and essential vitamins. The second reason is a shift from industrial, uh, from or- organic local agriculture, which is what we had for the vast majority of human history to industrialized agriculture. Why is that a problem? As soon as you take a plant out of the ground, it stops. It starts losing nutrients immediately. So if a, har- a carrot is harvested in the Central Valley in California, and then it's shipped by truck for five, you know, 3,000 miles across the country, and it's two weeks before you eat that carrot, 
the level of nutrients in that carrot is going to be minuscule compared to what it would be if you were at a farmer's market in the Central Valley and, and got that carrot a day after it was taken out of the ground. Or better yet, if you took it out of the ground from your backyard garden, right. like you're growing right. and put it on your plate and right. you can taste the difference. Like anyone who's had a carrot from their own backyard or from a farmer's market, and you compare the taste of that to a carrot from, you know, Safeway that's been, that's been sitting there for two weeks. It, it, right. It's like night and day. Right. So yeah. that's another reason. Um, increase in the rate of chronic disease. So chronic disease has a double whammy on nutrient status. Number one, it increases the demand for nutrients. So when we have a chronic disease, we actually need more nutrients than when we don't have a chronic disease. That makes sense, right? Your body's yeah. under stress. It's trying to deal with stuff. The other impact that chronic disease has is it reduces our absorption of nutrients. So for example, we know that people with obesity and diabetes are less able to absorb vitamin D from foods they eat. They also convert less sunlight from vitamin D in their skin or to vitamin D in their skin. So someone who has those conditions could be outside in the sun, standing right next to somebody who doesn't have those conditions with the exact same skin tone. And the person who is lean and healthy is going to produce far more vitamin D in that same period of time of exposure to sunlight. And then another factor, and, and that's, you know, that's not a small problem because six out of 10 people have a chronic disease now. And four yeah. out of 10 have multiple chronic diseases. I'll stop after this fourth one. I could go on and on, but the, the, <laughs> the other one is um, there are a, a large number of medications that, you know, uh, are, are super common that decrease the absorption of essential nutrients. So I, I mentioned metformin earlier, which is a common drug that's used to treat uh, diabetes and blood sugar related issues. And metformin is famous in the medical community for causing B12 and folate deficiency. And those are critical, critical nutrients that are involved in DNA synthesis and production of heme and transport of oxygen throughout the body. And, and, you know, if you end up with B12 or folate deficiency, you develop anemia, uh, short of, of oxygen and all of your cells and tissues, which has, you know, profound consequences. So, once I realized everything that I just told you, I was like, uh oh, you know, that was my first response was like, oh no, this is terrible. Like, um, because I, yeah, I mean, just in, just personally, I would rather just eat food. I don't yeah. want to be taking supplements. Um, who, who, who really likes to take supplements? <laughs> I, I have yet to found, find someone who really enjoys that process. But on the other hand, I want to be healthy. I want to be as, as, healthy as I can be. I want to build my resilience. I want to feel and perform my best. I want to live a long life and like maintain a sharp, clear mind right up until the day I die and continue mm. to be, you know, like I have friends here in the mountains who are skiing when they're 85 years old and just ripping and like awesome. mountain biking. Like that's what I want. That's how I want to grow yeah. old. And I know that in order to do that, I have to optimize my nutrient status. I think that's the number one thing that we have to do if we want to age, you know, healthy aging, and we want to maintain our health and well-being. There are other things, of course, but that is we, going back to the analogy. That's the foundation. That's the solid ground that we build the house on, and that we that we use to pour the concrete in the foundation is those nutrients. And if we don't have that, then nothing else will have the impact that we want it to have. So. That's uh that's that's what I've come to over 15 yeah. years of 
of um, my career in functional medicine. When somebody is supplementing, do you recommend that they, like there are certain supplements that I recommend that like pretty much everybody (laughs) take like magnesium, but in certain scenarios, are you recommending that people test before they supplement or are there general supplements that you think most people should be taking? Yeah. So there's, it's, it's both, both. And so in an ideal world, we would test so that we can know what nutrients are of the biggest concern. And in some cases we might need higher doses of those nutrients, you know, in order right. to, re- to, to recover. A lot of people, unfortunately don't have access to that kind of testing. And, you know, the doctor, if you're lucky, you might, you know, test a couple of nutrients on an annual physical, but they're not going to do a comprehensive nutrient panel. Most insurance companies don't, won't cover it because they see them as unnecessary, which is ridiculous. That's a whole nother <laughs> conversation. Yeah. But, um, and so I do think that there's like a basic suite of nutrients that, you know, essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients, like I mentioned before, bioflavonoids, uh, beta-glucans, lignans, uh, uh, carotenoids, et cetera, that, that research has shown are, are beneficial for our health. And we know that virtually everyone is not getting enough of, but it has to be very carefully done because there are nutrients. And this goes back to your question earlier that I didn't answer yet that, that, that are, that you don't want too much of, it's not always more is better. Right. And so some of those are calcium, uh, supplementing with high doses of calcium has actually been shown to not only improve bone health, but to increase the risk of cardiovascular disease because calcium ends up in our arteries and our soft tissue, like our kidneys, it can, it can increase the risk of kidney stones too. So that's one nutrient that you definitely don't want to go overboard with and supplement with at high doses, even if you're not getting enough in your diet. Um, Iron is another one. It's that's a Goldilocks nutrient where uh, iron deficiency is is certainly statistically a bigger problem worldwide. But iron overload is the most common genetic, genetically driven condition of in people of Northern European descent. It affects one in two hundred people in North America, and so it, it definitely is possible to get too much iron. Um, uh, iodine is another one that is, you know, of concern. Again, iodine deficiency is a bigger problem worldwide, but if you have Hashimoto's or a thyroid, you know, an autoimmune thyroid issue, too much iodine can actually push you in the wrong direction. Uh, too much vitamin A can be toxic, especially if you don't have enough vitamin K2 and, and vitamin D. So, um, I mean, this is why I ended up formulating adapt naturals in the, in the core plus bundle, because I saw so many people who were confused about what mm-hmm. to take. And, and, and I, it went beyond confusion. I saw people who were harming themselves because again, in my practice, I would ask people to bring everything they're taking in to the clinic and people would come in literally with like separate carry on suitcases full of, yeah. of, of supplements or like two legit full-size, you know, whole foods, shopping bags full of supplements. And we would go through them as part of the appointment. And, uh, you know, like I'd be looking at them I'd be like, okay, this is just a waste of money. Uh, this, right. you know, this isn't doing anything. Then this one is like 
okay, now, now I understand why these markers were super elevated in your blood work. You've been taking this for how long? For 10 years. Oh my God, you've been taking this for 10 years and what dose? Oh my God. You know, like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was just kind of a horror show often. And I, I don't blame the individual paid people who were coming in. They were confused because they had gotten so much bad advice over the years or a clinician prescribed something at a really high dose to correct a problem and then didn't tell them to stop. You know, so someone's taking 50,000 IU of vitamin D for 10 years or five years or something like that. And so, yeah, it's, uh, there is a, a basic suite of nutrients. That's the core plus bundle. It's a daily stack of five supplements that I think are just the, that foundation of core nutrients that most people aren't getting enough of and need. And then, you know, beyond that, each person is going to have their own individual needs. Like for some people that would be enough for other people, let's say someone who has an autoimmune condition or someone who has advanced metabolic disease, they might need, you know, additional support on top of that to really round it out and get the, get the impact that they want. Yeah. I just brought up the core plus bundle and I'm excited because you have a bioavailable organ complex from New Zealand, <laughs> which is really exciting. Yeah. I feel like yeah. everybody's always looking for a good organ complex. So that yeah. is awesome. So I'll tell you a little bit about that briefly because I'm okay. So I've been banging the drum of organ meats for so long because yeah. they are like, <laughs> and I don't know if you saw this recent study, it just came out this year. I was super excited about it. It was from Ty Beal, who I know is an amazing nutrition researcher. And he and his colleague, Flaminia Ortenzi, they, they work for, I think it's an NGO that is like basically trying to end world malnutrition and hunger. Like wow. they're, that's the problem that they're trying to address. So they're, they're looking at the developing world, seeing how common malnutrition is and saying, what are the foods that would give us the biggest bang for the buck? If we were like to spend money on like fortifying the diet of these people, not chemical fortification, not adding, you know, folic acid to flour or adding stuff right. to milk, but like actually giving them real foods. What should we feed these people to address malnutrition? And they did the first study that's ever been done on nutrient density that considered the bioavailability of foods. I mentioned before how spinach on paper is a phenomenal source of calcium. But then when you look at the phytic acid content, you find that only 5% of it is absorbed. So that would be a terrible choice to right. give people calcium or spinach to, to think that it will increase their calcium level. So this was the first study ever on nutrient density that looked at bioavailability. What did they find? five of the 10 most nutrient dense foods were organ meats, right? <laughs> liver, liver, kidney, heart, pancreas, and spleen. And it wasn't even close. Like they were orders of magnitude, more nutrient dense than other foods. So when I formulated my organ product, guess what I put in there? Liver, <laughs> kidney, heart, pancreas, <laughs> and spleen. Perfect. So, because I, look, I don't like the taste of organ meats. I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, I wish I'm not I did eat it. kidney. It's just, I, not... I wish yes. Yeah, spleen is not that pleasant to eat right. for me. Liver I can do, you know, sometimes, but like right, same. spleen and kidney, not yeah. going to happen. Pancreas, not going to happen. I know people eat sweetbreads that are made from pancreas. I'm jealous. I wish I could tolerate. I've tried so many different ways and my patients, I can also tell you like in hundreds of patients, thousands of patients that I've treated, I would say like 3% actually eat organ meats on a regular basis. So I was super excited to include that. In there. Yeah, I love it. I think that's going to be 
awesome. Um, and I, I'm definitely going to get some. And then obviously you have included magnesium. The myco I can see is the blend of the um, mushrooms, which is yeah. exciting. A multi. And then what's the E plus? Yeah. So this one requires a little explanation too. These are Delta and Gamma tocotrienols. And this is like, I think the most, one of the most exciting discoveries in health science in the past 20 years, but hardly anybody knows about it. So huh. um, tocotrienols are a unique form of vitamin E that were only really discovered in the year around 2000. So we're talking about a completely different form of a vitamin that we didn't even really know about until 20, you know, 25 years ago. It's a fascinating story. I know we're at the end of our time, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but here's the gist. Um, 89% of people don't get enough vitamin E in their diet. And I think it's probably higher than that, but that's the statistics from uh, Linus Pauling. So again, virtually everybody not getting enough vitamin E in their diet. Vitamin E is a critical antioxidant. It protects against cancer, cardiovascular disease, metabolic issues, supports our eyes, our bone health, everything else. But there's a big problem. If you supplement with vitamin E, the chances are you're taking the more common form of vitamin E called alpha-tocopherol or maybe a mixed tocopherol product. Yes. Studies have are pretty clearly shown now that high doses of tocopherols are associated with an increased risk of cancer and heart disease. Oh <laughs> Oops, that's not good, right? Yeah. Like, we're, we're, you're supplementing with something that trying to make up for the lack of it. And then it ends up causing the very problems that you're trying to prevent by supplementing right. it. So here's the amazing news about tocotrienols. They are 40 to 50 times more potent as antioxidants than vitamin E or the typical form of vitamin E tocopherols. They have incredible other benefits that tocopherols don't have. And yet they have none of the long-term risk associated with tocopherol supplementation. So I've been using them for years in my practice to help people regulate cholesterol levels, LDL particle, um, people with type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or insulin resistance or blood sugar issues, women in particular with osteopenia and osteoporosis, people with vision issues, skin problems, because all of those issues and pretty much all modern chronic disease involve inflammation and oxidative stress. So tocotrienols are anti-inflammatory and they're antioxidant. And it's basically a super nutrient that we get from plants, but that we can't really get in our diet. So that's, that was one of the uh, plus, you know, it's called core plus. Yeah. So the, the core is the multi, the organs and the magnesium, just the core nutrients that we need. And then the plus is the mushrooms, which have all of these amazing health properties. And then the tocotrienols as Very well. Cool. Okay, cool. I love that. That is really cool. And I we did get some questions that we did not get to about I'm eating the right things, but cholesterol is high. And so I think that 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 is a little bit of insight. That's a that's a that's a small answer to your question. Sorry <laughs> that we didn't get to, but yeah. um I love it. We will link to the core plus bundle in the show notes. Um, Chris's line is called adapt naturals, which I'm very excited about. I get excited about good quality supplements. So just, <laughs> you know, it's what a lot of people need, like you said, for, you know, went, went so into detail, but also it can be really helpful for us personally when we're going through our own things and to touch on gut health, uh, you know, just to kind of bring it back when you're struggling with inflammation or gut problems or whatever, you're already going to struggle with the absorption, proper absorption of nutrients um, on top of all of that. So I love a good organ complex. I love the stack. It, it looks awesome. Um, 
tell me more about what you are doing. It's it can I'm assuming people can find Adapt Naturals on your website, but it's also at adaptnaturals.com. But what else are you doing? Do you have anything else going on that you want to mention before we let you go? Uh, this has been my big focus for the past couple months. You know, it's not a small amount of work getting a, a sub, actually the past year, but in particular the past couple of months because we just launched a month ago. Uh, one wow. thing I want to mention that we included uh, when we launched the line is an app called Core Reset App. And, um, cause I will just flat out tell anyone who's listening not to take the supplements if they have not, if they're not also focusing on your diet, you know, optimizing your diet and lifestyle. Right. <laughs> I said, I said that before, like you cannot supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. Yes. And I believe that so deeply that we built an app to help people to dial in their diet and lifestyle. So it's a 20 day re, uh, kickstart program. We have meal plans, recipes, shopping lists, um, you know, with, uh, all the way through that 28 day period, we have guided stress management and movement videos and audio programs with me and other contributors. Um, and the intent there is to just help people who are struggling to dial this in. And yeah. you just follow along with the app, super easy. And, you know, by the end of that 28-day period, I can virtually guarantee that you're going to be feeling better and, you know, all of your systems are going to be firing <laughs> a lot better than they were when you started. And we are giving that app away to anybody that buys the Core Plus bundle. That's how serious I am about this. Like, I really want to support people in in making better lifestyle choices on a day-to-day -day basis. And, I'm really excited about that. We've had great feedback on the app and I just, you know, wanted to like be real about this. Like this is important. <laughs> you don't just take the supplements and do nothing else. Like the supplements are called supplements for a reason, right? They're mm -hmm. supposed to be added to a, a foundation of right. optimal health and well-being. And so um, that's why we built the app and are including it with, with Core Plus. Chris, thank you for all of your time. This has been one of our longer episodes and I know people are going to be just so appreciative of it um, and we'll get a lot from it. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing your knowledge and for making supplements and things that we can take that we can trust. Well, thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and happy to come back some other time. Yeah, I will take you up on that. Okay, so for more from me, coconutsandkettlebells.com, the app that Chris talked about was the Core Reset app. His website is chriscresser.com and that Core Plus bundle and the new Adapt Naturals line is at adaptnaturals.com. Thanks for being here, guys. I will talk to you next week.